The following podcast contains movie spoilers, unpopular opinions, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Listener discretion is advised. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. You're listening to Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. On Subgenre, we focus on films outside the major categories, and in season one, that focus is on the steel and saltwater world of submarine movies. In today's episode, it's a mano a mano game of open ocean chicken between the baritone, barrel chested Robert Mitchum and the gruff German turned Austrian actor Kurt Jurgens in a film by actor-director Dick Powell. Take your salt tablets, kids, the sea's getting rough. This is The Enemy Below. And joining me via Zoom today to say intelligent things, maybe, about film and whatever else, is a super fantastic screenwriter, an independent filmmaker, and a self-described clown college reject, although it was a very exclusive school. It's N.C. Jones. Hello, N.C. Hi, Josh. How's it going? Oh, man. It's so good. It's so good to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it, for sure. As am I. Uh, I, I have a scotch in hand and yourself? Yep. I'm drinking uh, tequila and fresca. It is Robert Mitchum's favorite drink. I'm sure it was at some point. Absolutely. Time. I think pretty much anything with alcohol in it may have been Robert Mitchum's favorite yes, drink. Anything with alcoholic content. Yeah, you're right. Well, today we're going to be talking about The Enemy Below, which uh, truth be told is a film I had not seen until uh, I was prepping for this episode. Had you seen this movie before this time? I had not seen it before. Um, um, I, I think I was aware of it. Robert Mitchum is when I lean back to like classic Hollywood, he's not my favorite dude, um, which is a little strange. Really? But uh, yeah, he's kind of a bad boy, which should play, but I, I tend to lean more <laughs> towards the Jimmy Stewart in that era for some reason. Well, double yeah. date. You take you take Robert, you, you take Jimmy Stewart, I'll take Robert Mitchum. Come on. Okay. I'm not going to fight you for it. <laughs> well, how, how about submarine films? Are you a submarine film uh, person? Yes, for sure. For sure. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, that's good because you you happen to be on the right show for that kind of discussion. Um, well, then, okay, great. So the the enemy below with Robert Mitchum and, and Kurt Jurgens. Uh, what do we know about it before we talk plot? Yeah, so a, a 1957 uh, CinemaScope film. Love the CinemaScopes. Oh, yeah. um, the story of a battle of an American destroyer and a German U-boat during World War II, um, based on the story of the USS Buckley and really a British novel uh, by the author D.A. Rayner. Came out just around Christmas time in 1957. Because this is the movie you want to watch at Christmas. Take the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe Robert Mitchum without a shirt on, if that's your, <laughs> if that's your idea of a sure. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Um, budget was, I think, 1.9 million, and that would be 17 million today. So that'd be a really uh, low budget feature, uh, I think. But probably at the time with the warships and the cooperation of the Navy, it was, it was a bigger production than that number would suggest, I believe. And the film won 1958 special effects uh, Oscar and was directed by Dick Powell. 
Powell, uh, who directed The Conquerors and Gold Diggers and hosted The Dick Powell Show, oddly enough. Uh, written by Wendell Mays, who is a fantastic screenwriter. He wrote Von Ryan's Express, oh. Poseidon Adventure, Anatomy of, Mur- of a Murder, uh, just some phenomenal scripts. Love the Poseidon Adventure. So when you get to the disaster movie uh, genre season, hit me up. Oh, I it's love- coming. It's got to be coming. <laughs> <laughs> and, when, and when I get to when I get to movies aboard trains, Von Ryan's Express is, is oh. certainly going to be on there as well. Check, Let, check let's not one. forget to mention, though, that this was the American film debut of a, a well-known actor in Germany, not well-known in the U.S. until this point, a gentleman by the name of, and I'm going to be pronouncing this so incorrectly, but Kurt Jürgens with the umlauts <laughs> over the U, who, uh, when he came to America, they played to people like me and just called him Kurt Jurgens. Yes, yeah, he had to Americanize that. And I guess after World War II is the time to come to American cinema for the Austrian-German <laughs> professional. <laughs> you got a lot to play. The, the yeah. range may not be wide, but you're going to have a lot of roles. A lot of work. You're going to be taking a lot of work, yeah. Well, then, hey, let's uh, let's talk about this film. Let's talk about The Enemy Below in our feature presentation. <laughs> So our feature presentation is The Enemy Below with Robert Mitchum and Kurt Jurgens. This is, as we mentioned, a story that takes place in World War II. It's taking place uh, in the open ocean, in this case, in the South Atlantic. Um, it is a duel between an American destroyer escort, not an American destroyer, as I thought when I was watching this, a destroyer escort, there's a difference, kids, and a German U-boat commander as they are engaging in a deadly duel with ships. In Cinemascope. Don't forget the Cinemascope. I mean, I I went through a phase there where I was watching every Cinemascope film that I could find. And there's a lot of like stuff that you wouldn't recognize. But just if you're looking for a cross section of old films to watch, you can do worse. You can do worse. (laughs) Cinemascope and the deluxe film process. Let's not forget the deluxe film process. Um, We've got our destroyer escort. It's called the USS Haynes. It's cruising the ocean. We start out with our doctor, just called doctor, really, in this film, (laughs) um, played by an actor named Russell Collins. He's walking the deck and saying hi to all the sailors. There's a storm coming. And we get Robbins, BMSN Robbins, played by an actor named Joe Dorada, who uh, starts this movie by dumping trash off the fantail of the ship, as you do. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was such a weird shot. There was a guy looking out the back of the boat there and his back's to the camera. And it just like sucked me in. And I was like, who is this mysterious dude? This is Robert Mitchum, right? Like, this is the guy. No, no, no. This is <laughs> not a character you need to care about. But the, just the frame on him dumping that winding path through the ship and then you land the camera lands on that shot and it's like who is this mystery guy um it was nobody it wasn't important <laughs> it's nobody was important was throwing the trash for the sharks that's right uh, that's right he's worried he's worried about the sharks he's worried about the sharks off the back which is a little bit of a foreshadowing of what what's hanging out there the enemy below yeah. um but really the person i want to pay attention to in this scene is his buddy and this is bmsn corky played by jeff daly jeff daly who did basically nothing but westerns besides this film but has the most amazing baritone voice you have ever heard in your life yeah it's so deep and it's, it's so funny because in the opening credits you saw name biff in the credits <laughs> and i was just like that's gotta be biff it's not biff but uh his voice is just he could be darth vader he could be everybody deep voiced corky is 
talking to our buddy Robbins, who's dumping the trash off, about the new captain. He's, he's, uh, we haven't heard the captain's name yet. We haven't seen the captain. We just know that he's taking the place of old Captain Pinky because everybody thinks Pinky's seasick. And, uh, and Robbins uh, declares as he walks away from his trash uh, dumping duties to everybody else, you know, hey, you got to take this seriously because the guy who walks that bridge has your neck in his hands and don't you forget it. Yeah, he's not going to let it slide for a second. And then we transition to some folks playing bridge. Yeah. Yeah, playing bridge up in the officer's mess, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they're okay. And this is, you might have to help me here because there's there's a lot of people up there playing bridge and I could ID a few of them, right? So there's Lieutenant Ware, played by David Hedison. There's Lieutenant Mackison, who comes back later, played by Alan Dexter. There's this really super nervous, super green ensign uh, named Ensign Mary, uh, an actor named Doug McClure, who is playing bridge as a partner with someone else at that table. Who the hell was that? Because he comes uh, back. Uh, that was um, Frank Albertson, but he is Lieutenant Sam Crane. Wayne. Yeah, he's Sam Wainwright from It's a Wonderful Life. He's the guy that's like, hee-haw, hee-haw, to Jimmy Stewart, taking it back to Jimmy Stewart. Um, but he's also in like some Marx Brothers movies. And uh, yeah, he I recognized him. I also recognize this other dude who I don't exactly remember his name, but he's at the table. He's not in the bridge game. Lieutenant Ware, yeah. He looked like Alan Arkin. And he... <laughs> was in a lot of 60s and 70s TV. He was in Twilight Zone and Batman. And gotcha. Ralph, Man Ralph Manza, that's who it was. Okay. Banachek's partner. Okay, okay. <laughs> so all of these people are up there in the, the wardroom. They're all playing bridge. Ensign Mary's doing his best, which is not very good. And they're they're talking really about this new captain, as everyone is on the ship. Um, we find out in that scene that the new captain, whoever he may be, uh, just got his last ship torpedoed in the North Atlantic and really should not have a new command yet, and yet he does. It's a little confusing. Why didn't Lieutenant Ware get bumped up from the XO position to head this thing? But, you know, there we are. We got a new captain. Right about then, the ship is ordered to darken for the night. They're going to cruise at night, and you got to be quiet, right? Kind of dark. You don't want to get hit by those U-boats. So there's a storm coming. The storm finally hits. There's a blip on the radar. Ware calls the captain from the tower and says, hey, captain, we got a blip on the radar. What should we do? The mystery captain, whose voice we hear for the first time, that of Mr. Robert Mitchum, says, I don't know, sailor, what should we do? And uh, Ware tells him, and he likes the answer, I guess. Yeah, it's so strange to me that you're going to spend 30 minutes setting up a film starring Robert Mitchum, and you're going to wait that long to bring him on onto screen, because a lot of that setup in the earlier sequences is, let's meet all the, all the sailors on the ship, you kind of go through and get the more sort of cross-section of the people serving in the military at that time. And then you have that little bridge game and it's it's like, oh, he's been torpedoed. Like, it, are we worried about this captain? Right. And then, yeah, he just sort of nonchalantly throws it off. So it's such a strange introduction. Uh, he gets a little bit of the Kaiser Soze introduction here. It's just like everybody's <laughs> heard of him. Nobody's seen him. And we maybe we get a voice, you know? So, so uh, yeah, so the captain's like, uh, yeah, mister, what do we do? Ware tells him he likes the answer. They're going to they're gonna be buds. It's going to be okay. Down in the bunks, though, the men, the rest of the men on this ship hear that we've got this blip on the radar. And, of course, with nothing else to do and, and fearing for their lives, potentially, they all run and gather at the radar room. And it's at right that moment when our new captain, Captain, uh, is it Morell? Yeah, Captain Morell uh, makes his appearance and it's it's a great way to enter the scene. You've got all these guys that are like lined up around this radar room trying to, you know, push each other aside and peek in and see the blip on the radar. And there's this dude that's just like, pushing him aside saying, ah, move out of the way. Excuse me, coming through. And the guy at the front of the line turns around and goes, hey, you know, hey, buddy, I'm up here and realizes by looking at him, 
oh, damn, that's the new captain. So right. that- he's not wearing like a hat or anything no. like he's not dressed like an officer. You don't you know, he doesn't have a cigar or anything. Yeah, you turn you turn around and you see Robert Mitchum and it gives you pause and you go, that must be the captain. And it is. It's Captain Morell. He's come through to see the radarman. Uh, the radarman's name is Andrews, played by Peter Dane. Andrews thinks that the blip could be a sub. It could be a, you know, a sharks or whales humping or whatever, but it, you know, it could also be a sub. And so uh, Morell orders the Hanes to slow down so that they can tail this U-boat because a slow destroyer escort is probably less detectable by a U-boat. Probably. Yeah. The reaction of the crew, you, you said when they got out of their bunks and everything, they're not terrified Mm-mm. by this prospect. They're like, oh, we get to do something now. Like we've been, this is why we joined the Navy to go kill some people. <laughs> so they're real excited. And it's just like, all right, finally, finally. The tension, the, you know, the drama of being in this like sub, this thing you can't really detect. Uh, They don't seem very worried about it to me. And That's true. I I mean, there's only so many games of checkers and whatever that you can play, I guess. And so, so you know, a little, a little danger out in the water is kind of fun. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to go slow on the destroyer escort so as not to be detected, but we are detected because down underneath the ocean on the U-boat, Captain Von Stolberg, played by the aforementioned Kurt Jurgens, Kurt Jurgens. I'm gonna call him Kurt Jurgens from here okay. from here on out, just to do it. Um, Kurt Jurgens and his sonar men, they have a signal on their sonar. They see something, but they can't quite tell whether is this a ship, is this something else? And so they decide to do some turns to see if this thing follows. And if it follows, then it's a ship. And so they turn to the left and they turn to the right. And uh, back on the destroyer escort, uh, Morell is smart enough not to take the bait. He's too overpowered. Like he knows exactly what the sub dude's going to do. I guess it just speaks to his proficiency as a sub captain. But his last ship got sunk. So, I mean, he can't be that proficient, uh, but he's got him handle and he tricks him. But I really appreciate the cut to uh, the German U-boat because, like, the introduction for von Stolberg is so much more human than the introduction to the Mitchum character, the mural, Captain Mural. Like, he's in there with his crew. He's got his best friend in the world, Heine, over there. He's, you know... Oh, yeah, we'll talk about Heine. He's such an instantly more sympathetic even though he's a german and you know he's in a u-boat and you know the whole battle here is good versus evil um maybe i don't have a preconceived notion of what kurt jurgens is as an actor yep robert mitchum i know him as a bad boy and he doesn't seem like a a ship captain to me he's like an anti-authority kind of guy Mm -hmm. uh and so i think i kind of immediately like the german u-boat captain uh a little bit more than robert mitchum (laughs) (laughs) so they are they're down there and they're zigging, you know, they're zigging, zagging left and right, which which honestly reminded me a lot of the the crazy Ivan scenes in Hunt for Red October, where where they're zigging the sub to see if anybody's behind them. But the destroyer or the blip on their signal doesn't move. And so Von Stolberg is relatively satisfied. You know, this is nothing to worry about. So he says, don't you know, we're we're cool, guys. Keep going because we've got this mission to go on. We are trying to pick up this British code book and I got to I got a schedule to keep. So we got to keep going. 
Morell, on the other hand, back on the destroyer, tells his crew, okay, guys, they didn't find us. Uh, in the morning, we're going to give them a surprise. We're going to be at battle stations in the morning, so everybody be ready. Uh, the crew is like, I don't know, is this safe? Like in the North Atlantic, there's three ships that go after these U-boats. Why are we doing this with just one? And we get the introduction of this term that's going to be thrown out throughout the movie with some of the crew thinking that Morell is a feather merchant. I had to look it up. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware. I just thought he was shipping feathers. <laughs> <laughs> I went with a feather to me said like feather bed or like he's soft or he's, a, I don't know. I looked at feather merchant and it's basically someone who evades responsibility, right? So someone who runs from a fight or, or he's, he's chicken, right? Okay. That, okay. Yeah. That's not against type there. I'm guessing I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting, you know, 1940s, 1950s slang into present day. Right, that's yeah. It's my best guess people. Um, on the U-boat, uh, Von Stolberg, uh, we are introduced to kind of his XO, I guess, or at least his political officer on board, which is a man named Kunz, yeah, played by the name. actor. Yeah, Kunz, <laughs> played by Arthur Laral, and uh, basically just tells him, hey, buddy, I'm going to go to sleep. If anything changes, let me know. On the way out to go back to his cabin, Von Stolberg has to pass underneath this sign that's on a bulkhead that says, and here's my terrible German, uh, Führer Biefel wir folgen, which loosely translated is leader commands we follow. And he does this wonderful act of character revelation, I guess, where as he's walking by, he takes his shirt or his jacket or whatever thing he, rag he had in his hand and covers the word Führer on, on the way out, which is in direct opposition to uh, the Führer-loving Kunz. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You instantly get a picture of the nuance here of the German people maybe a little bit divided, adding a little bit more sympathy to our proficient captain here. I appreciate that for sure. It feels a little heavy handed because it's the letters are rather large and it's something you can't miss. But yeah, so you know he's not 100% like party man. Then we get this wonderful conversation here in a second. Yeah, and, and the conversation is back in the cabin or in the stateroom or whatever you want to call it on the boat. Von Stolberg is back there with another sailor uh, who you mentioned before, whose name is Heine, Heine Schwaffer, played by Theodore Bickel, who has had some pretty fun uh, credits over the years, including The African Queen with Humphrey Bogart. So he's been in a room with some actors. Heine wonders out loud to the captain, you know, hey, we sure we shouldn't take that signal a little more seriously? Nah, Von Stolberg says, we got to go get the British code book. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I'm smart. We'll be fine. And then the scene takes a turn and we go from being this sort of moment of two guys guys uh, drink I guess one guy is drinking uh, the other guy says, eh, I'm, I'm good. I'll have a ginger ale. We go from the scene of the guys just sitting and talking to von Stolberg really going into soliloquy mode for a minute. Yeah, yeah. It's so on the nose right after that cover up the Hitler thing. Is this the guy you want leading the mission to get the code book? <laughs> like, there's no question that he doesn't necessarily want to be in this position and he doesn't think that Germany's cause is so righteous. And uh, yeah, and then he gets his pictures of his sons out. So he's just like overloading the empathy for this captain. Yeah, he gives the, I've been driving subs too long. The only thing that's left for me is to think about going home, but I can't really go home because I had two sons and now both of them are dead because I pushed them into war and I can't rest without a drink. Thus, he's the only person that's drinking at the moment. And he's got this wonderful quote, which is never think, Heine, be a good warrior and never think you pay a penalty for thinking 
you cannot rest. Love that line. Yeah. At this point in the film, I was totally not on Germany's side or anything. I just feel like- (laughs) Make sure you say that up front. (laughs) This period of film, but he's such a human. I mean, you're seeing him vulnerable. You're seeing him have this alcohol problem. And in comparison to the Robert Mitchum character, who is not sitting there playing bridge with his folks, he's not telling stories about the last time he got sunk. He's just cold and heartless and there's no emotion. He's just like a wall. And this guy's talking to like the guy that's been with him for a long time and talking about his dead son. So it's just like night and day to me. They overshot that. It, I would like a little bit more nuance, but he's the much more sympathetic character. Oh yeah. And they take it even further with, he asks Heine, are we friends? You know, and Heine's like, I don't know. Like I, sometimes I'm afraid of you and sometimes you're fine. I don't, I don't know if we're friends. Ah, we're friends. Let me tell you about, let me tell you about how sick I am of war and how World War I was better because there was humanity and human error. And now that we're in World War II, it's just machines. And so the purpose is dark uh, and the reason is twisted and there is no honor. And again, a second great quote from this scene if we die, we die without God. The anti-war thing sort of bubbles up in me here because I'm like, how could you say World War One was a better war? <laughs> I mean, just the human toll. But the, the message there really is the, the machinery and yeah. technology kind of making it easier to indiscriminately kill more people. And I mean, there's some truth to that, but in the whole, like, that's war. There's, there's, there, when was there humanity in war? What was the what? Apparently you know? it was in World War one apparently was in world war one and on that note von stolberg passes out and heine basically takes off his shoes and puts him to bed uh back on the destroyer captain morell is talking to lieutenant crane and says hey guys uh how how long does it take your men to reload the depth charges ah well it's like three or four minutes now we got to do better uh this is a trope from a, a a few different submarine movies that we've talked about this season about how long does it take to do x well it takes this long you need to do better and it's the doing better that's going to save your life later on yeah yeah and and so the the doctor's talking to morell and he's like you know how do you know that that signal that blip on our sonar is a u-boat and morell is basically like i just know it is i can feel it i mean that's the infallibility of the u.s command uh right the u.s military structure it's of course you could just feel it you can just feel it you can, <laughs> that's a good reason the to force. do stuff he's using the force <laughs> This was really a trial run for the Star Wars universe. Yeah, it's uh, I feel it and therefore it is. So this is what we're going to do, guys. Um, In real life, though, Morell says he was on a boat in the North Atlantic before this. That boat got torpedoed, right? We kind of heard rumors of this before. On that boat, which we didn't know, was Morell's new British wife. And the story that goes along with her is just horrible. He's so nonchalant. Like, he's like, yeah, I had a wife. She got sank. Um, <laughs> I watched her sink into the ocean. Didn't try to throw her a rope. Didn't, like, maybe there's a lifeboat on my side of the boat. Like, I don't know. He, I think it's all to Robert Mitchum's delivery where he's just cold and he doesn't, you know, I buy him as the psychopath in uh, Night of the Hunter. I buy him as the bad boy with the problem with authority. I don't buy him as like the sincere, sad sea captain whose wife had this tragic accident and just like doesn't work for me at all. Well, the doctor basically says that to him and says in a coded way and says, I think you may have more reason than most of us to want to sink this sub. Like, are you kind of on a suicide run here, Morell? And, but Morell, like you said, he's, he's just sort of matter 
matter of fact about it. He's like, nah, this isn't my war. I'm just here to do a job, but don't, don't worry about it. And kind of posits that maybe our, our sub-captain might not like his job either. Yeah, that's where I'm like, oh, that's the Department of Defense coming in and like <laughs> controlling the narrative a little bit because he never feels human to me. I know what my foe is thinking. And he does. He does. <laughs> <laughs> He does. Every single moment of this movie, Robert Mitchum's character just seems to do the right thing, not the wrong thing. We could talk about this. We can go into this in a minute. But really, his sort of struggling with what to do in the moment does not really exist. No, there's no conflict. There's no terrible decisions. He doesn't have to like seal off the deck to let the dudes die. Like the hard choices don't get made. Yeah, that's why I just don't truck with him in this particular role. He's a great actor, but just not working for me in this. But he's a really good guy to the next day call battle stations and have everybody, they're manned and ready. Uh, This department's ready. This department's ready. Very well. And he quotes a message to the guy who apparently always is standing by to take his message to send somewhere because we've seen this guy before checking in. He's given it to this ensign to go send off to command. Uh, The lookout on top of the ship points into the horizon and says, hey, look, a sub. I found him. And then we get this cut to the sub that is one of the most wonderful things in the world because Standing on top of this submerged, not submerged, what is it when you're not submerged? Surfaced. Standing standing on top of this surfaced sub is basically everybody on the sub. And looking back at this giant ass boat coming towards them. You're like, oh, yeah, maybe that's a problem. Like, they didn't (laughs) use the periscope before they came up to see if they were being tracked or anything. No. Just, just, oh, okay. And then, so you have that eye contact or whatever, the binocular contact. Yeah. They can stare each other down. And they're chilling out on the deck. And by the way, chilling in a very relaxed fashion. And I am going to talk about this here in a little while, but just the wardrobe you know, sartorial choices of the people on this ship are unique. And and I I'll, that's all I'll say at this point. We'll come back to it. But they see the boat, alarm, and they dive the boat down. And at that moment, if you are a destroyer escort captain, the thing to do, as everybody on the destroyer escort knows, is to speed up the ship, go chase the submarine down, and blow it to hell. Morel chooses to do the opposite. He slows the ship down, and that's unexpected. Yeah, because he thinks... He knows exactly what the sub captain's going to do, which he does, and uh, just tracks it. So we can have a little bit of downtime to do more of these shots of everybody in tank tops and shorts. (laughs) So, okay. So on the boat, Morel slows down the big boat, and our quartermaster, here's Biff. This is Biff Elliott playing the quartermaster. This is Biff. He did not look like a Biff. He did not. Um, Definitely did not look like a Biff. Um, He's like, there's there's not a lot of Biffs walking around these days. Yeah, Biffs and Adolfs didn't get very far after (laughs) the the 40s and the 50s. Um, Biff, the quartermaster, says, "Eh, What are we doing? Why are we slowing down? Now we're sitting ducks. And Morel basically says, yeah, we're sitting ducks. I'm giving them a free shot, boys. We're going to sit here and see if they uh, want to turn around and fire at us. Down in the submarine, they uh, decide, yeah, that, that might be a great idea. So they go to silent running and von Stolberg uh, is watching to see if Haynes's ship is going to get closer like he would expect it to. And it doesn't. It sits there. And von Stolberg says aloud, he thinks this captain is either clever or a fool. And he's right on both counts. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess it's that line. There's a thin line between genius and insanity. And the same line in this, basically, is the same line. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's the same. Um, So they, they rise to periscope depth, right? So, okay, he's not coming at us. What do we do? You've got von Stolberg describing this ship 
to Dude in His Boat. Dude in His Boat has a book of silhouettes of different Navy ships, which I, I feel like I've seen this uh, before in, in other movies, but it's still always cool whenever I see it. And he's trying to ID the ship by the silhouettes. Yeah, it reminded me of, I, I don't know of the ships, but definitely in Father Goose with Cary Grant, when the airplanes are flying overhead, he has to identify them and radio back. And he's got a big poster or book or something about the airplanes so he can do that. But before computers, before you had, nice zoom lenses and things yeah <laughs> you couldn't read the serial number off of him you're like all right we'll just go with the silhouette that should be good enough so all you really had to do was like be really good at paper mache and like just build an extra smokestack <laughs> or something on it and then people are like what the f- is this i don't know this which is- boat this is <laughs> You're good, yeah. <laughs> well, they they see, okay, they identify it. It is a Buckley-class ship. That's a bad thing. And so they ready their stern tubes, and on command, Von Stolberg yells, Torpedoes! loose and off they go and here the torpedoes are speeding through the water and morell is chilling on the deck at the boat and he's checking his watch periodically because he knows exactly uh when torpedoes that he hasn't seen fired are going to hit the boat he's using the force he's using the force he's maybe he's like aquaman and we don't know this his secret (laughs) identity is like talking to fishes and they're like (laughs) relaying information to him at some point it's a beautiful thing to watch really because it's just like okay we're waiting we're waiting and now and he calls for a hard turn and they basically like drift race this giant boat tokyo drift it around in time so that these torpedoes just speed by um one side of the boat and they get to watch them go like by and so the torpedoes have missed them the submarine crew can't reload immediately and so that means that the haynes has a turn to shoot And so they steam after the U-boat and the U-boat dives. They realize that their torpedoes have missed. They dive. The sonar man on the destroyer escort played by David Post is tracking them. And we are told that he is the best sonar man. Like he's not going to miss a beat. And so he's keeping on them. Von Stolberg waits until the ship thinks it knows his his sub's depth. A submarine in this situation which should go down to X number of meters. And so that is how we manually set, and you have to manually set back in the day, uh, the depth charges by twisting, you know, whatever knob is on the front of them. Oh, you know, 50, 75, 150. And so they have, they figure out, uh, we think he's at this depth, twist, and then we're going to release them. But then the U-boat does something a little unexpected. Yeah, and it goes deeper. Yeah, it goes deeper. It goes deeper. He's like, okay, wait, wait for it, wait for it. Okay, they think they know where we are. Let's go. And they dive a little bit deeper. And because they dive a little bit deeper, our sonar men goes, oh, they dive a little bit deeper, which means everyone on deck has to now go over and really quickly manually turn the knobs and change the depth on the depth charges so they explode at the right time. And unfortunately, while that's going on, in the midst of getting all those things turned, the captain calls for a release of the depth charges, and he might have should have waited. Yeah, that poor, poor sailor had his fingers where they were not supposed to be. Yeah, Ellis, uh, Ellis. uh, Yeah, and goodbye, fingers. It's such a weird shot. Like, they do no sound. It's that sanitized version of World War II. You're right, though, in that it is a super weird shot because it's both sanitized and gruesome at the same time. I want to go back and watch it because I almost kind of feel like it's the shower scene from Psycho where you don't actually see stabbing, but you feel like you did. And so in that moment, in my memory of it, there's like gushing blood and and whatever. And I know that there's not. Screwing up depth charges, that's probably the best outcome you could hope for. That I agree with. But I guess it it definitely is the captain's fault because he did not let his guy finish his uh, resetting those depth charges. Premature. 
while this is going on, while our guy's losing his fingers and we're resetting our depth charges and we're dropping our depth charges, the U-boat takes this moment to play some confusion and releases some oil, which kind of screws with the sonar, which allows them to essentially just pass within inches right underneath this destroyer and go towards the backside of it. Sonar loses the signal. They're working some math, you know, inside the boat going, okay, so if they were here and then later, if they kind of, I think they, and again, this is a moment where Robert Mitchum is dead on with his. Yeah, the force tells him exactly. (laughs) I mean, okay, they were looking for a heading of 140. If he presumed that they were on a mission where they always had to continue on that heading of 140, then that's fine. But he just totally guesstimates. He's like, 30 minutes. If I am Kurt Jurgens and I'm on a mission to go pick up the British code book, and yeah, like 140 as the crow flies or swims or whatever, like if I know that he knows, do I keep coming back to 140 or do I maybe like take a detour and and then, and then swing back like, around. You can see him before he can see you. I think circle around and get a beat on him and shoot him from behind and you're good to go. But you know, <laughs> hindsight is 2020, uh, 2021. Uh, that part I didn't understand. Like we, we got to keep going in a straight line. Robert Mitchum knows you're going in a straight line. He's done the math. He says, eventually they're going to come back to this this course of 140. We will be there when they come back to that because we have done the math. And uh, that is what we're going to come back to when we discuss more about the enemy below. Let's take a break. If you've listened to other podcasts, and really by this point we're going to assume you have, then you've probably heard our name, Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and creative video. We produce the shows you can't wait to binge, like the acclaimed Art Curious podcast. And of course, this thing, can we call it a show? Oh, sure we can. Subgenre. But did you know we're also available to creatively consult on your podcast too? That's right. We're here to turn your hobby into a professional-grade production that sounds just like the storytelling, discussion, or investigative podcast you download, all with help from our award-winning team. Treat your show seriously and get noticed with help from Kabunki. Mention this ad to get 10% off your first consultation. Find out more at kabonki.com. That's kabunki.com. Kabunki. Dot com. Kabunki. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. You're listening to Subgenre. I am here with NC Jones talking about the enemy below. NC, how we feeling? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm dealing with these depth charges and ready to proceed. Well, let's uh, not yeah. proceed too quickly because it's time for subpar. <laughs> In subpar, we talk about that thing in the movie that just knocks the wheels off, uh, stops it cold, the thing that sometimes is so good because it's so bad. And in this movie, that is two things for me. And I want to hear your opinion on both of these. And the first one, and probably to me the biggest one, uh, is what I alluded to in the the last part of this show, which is the U-boat outfits. They've been out to sea for a really long time, Josh. They don't have a tailor on board. No, 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 no. It's not about we don't have a tailor on board. It's not about we've been at sea for a while. Let me paint a picture. So there are generally two types of outfits aboard this submarine. 
One of them is the captain's outfit, Von Stolberg, Kurt Jurgens, who is in a shirt that, you know, he's got, he's got like a sailor's hat and he's in a shirt that is unbuttoned all the way down to the navel. Chest hair just everywhere. Yeah, okay. I, I maybe I get it. You're a sub captain. You you don't care. It's, it's a sweaty hot sub. Down there. It's, it's hot. hot, right? And maybe maybe it's the hot part that makes the other part of the costume necessary, which is the rest of the sailors on board this sub are basically in short shorts and a tank top. If, if they have a tank top. If and and those without a shirt are oiled within an inch of their life. Am yes, I right yeah. or am I wrong? You know, you're correct. You did miss the captain and that really, really touching scene with Heine at the beginning of the film. He's wearing these rubber pants. They might be leather. They might be like the rain slicker pants or something a submarine dude would wear. But they're so loud. And he's like reclining on the bed and trying to get all comfortable with his drink. And they're like squeaking so much. And it's really <laughs> awkward to me that, uh, yeah, it's hot. And I don't know why you're wearing leather pants, but uh, maybe the laundry's running thin. It may be. It may be. It was interesting. I watched Crimson Tide and there's so many dudes on Crimson Tide uh, on that ship that are so out of shape. And I'm like, how could you be on a sub? Oh, yeah. All the German dudes on this sub look good. <laughs> they're in great shape. There's a gym uh, somewhere on that sub. There is a gym. They are getting their reps in. They are oiled up the end. Oh yeah, film. and let's let's just put the outfits aside. But let's go to what they're doing while in the outfits, which for a majority of this movie is a single shot that gets repeated at least a half a dozen times of these guys. They're supposed to be bracing, I guess, for the depth charge hit, but mostly it just looks like a Herb Ritz shoot. It's just it's everybody just sort of stretched out and posed oh, and elongated, and it's beautiful. Like it's a it's a beautiful shot, but they use the hell out of it. They're very Aryan. They're very Aryan <laughs> in, in this film. It is distracting quite a bit. Yeah. In pieces of it, it just kind of felt like some sort of cross between like a Robert Palmer and a Janet Jackson video. It was that on a boat. Anyway, that it just it stopped the whole movie for me. Not to mention it happened six or seven times and just made me think for a while and, and notice. So I wanted to mention it here in subpar. The other part of it that got to me is all the way through this movie in the big action sequences, you have these wonderful moments where, like you said, they had the cooperation of the Navy, obviously. And so they're riding aboard this big destroyer escort and they are dropping actual depth charges in the water behind the boat and watching them explode, which is cool, right? Yeah, it looks amazing. Like that's where I get a little jealous. I'll be so cynical about, oh yes, the War Department working with hot Hollywood to make these propaganda films, but it looks damn cool when you can tell your lead is right there and there's a real depth charge going off right behind him. It just looks phenomenal. And here's the problem with doing that. If you set up that you have that capability to do something that visually stunning and cool with explosions, then, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but you know, this whole show is a spoiler. So you're listening to the wrong show if you don't like spoilers. When you blow up ships then, and you do it in a less than really, really incredible way, it's gonna stick out. 
And the explosion and fire effects in this movie, I mean, they are TV at best. Yeah, I mean, mini- miniatures are hard to pull off, period. Like, you got to get really good lighting. You got to get a lot of the composition right. But like, I thought the fact that the sub is underwater, the water can kind of blur it out and hide it a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. They gave this little war an Academy Award in 1957. This is cutting edge. It's cutting edge. Definitely cutting edge. You know, that's half the reason people use CinemaScope as for, or the anthropomorphic lenses, uh, you know, for special effects shoots. Um, anamorphic, which, right? Yeah. Yeah, anamorphic. Anthro- anthro- yeah, the anthropomorphic what? lenses. <laughs> the, ones that, the ones that are kind of humanoid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. They gave it an award. It was good. Had it have been the miniatures on their own, okay. But you put the miniatures up against those real effects they were doing, and it's just no contest, and it looks a little Godzilla. It took me out of the movie. It was my moment of subpar, but, uh, you know, it's okay because we got more movie to talk about. And so we're going to step back into right after we have had this moment of dropping depth charges and boom, and the depth charges that rolled over our friend Ellis's fingers, uh, we come back to the aftermath. And this is Morel going down to see the doctor down in sickbay to see the injured Ellis. And that's the moment where we as an audience get it confirmed for us. Yeah, dude's got no more fingers. Yeah, he's like, oh, well, you'll be back to your civilian job in no time. And Ellis is like, no, as a watchmaker, not the profession you want to lose your fingers in. So it punches, but it, it punches only on Ellis because really Morel's like, well, that was my bad. Sorry. <laughs> it was, it was um, a my bad moment. He's like, you get another job you can work at the ice cream shop or something (laughs) like i was waiting for it to be the you know but i was a concert pianist for a second i did brain surgeon that was what i was expecting and i was like oh watchmaker uh okay it's not that bad it could have been worse he's a he's a watchmaker without fingers on the right hand but don't worry he's got a second hand I really, really, really wanted to make that joke, and I'm so glad that I did because it was that bad. Um, so Ellis is not going to go back to being a watchmaker. Morel says, yeah, my bad. Sorry about that, and goes back to being a captain. We dive out of what could be this moment of Morel sort of realizing maybe my actions are having effect on other people, but nah, the hell with that. Let's get back to the action where a message arrives on the decoder, and more ships are coming, right? They're supposed yeah. to be hunting with three. More are coming, but it's going to be a a little bit before they get there. So Morel looks at Ware and Ware looks at Morel and says, you know, what do you want to do? And Ware says, let's push our luck. That's where he's, he's making, again, the unlikable, probably logically the wrong decision if you're taking this as a realistic story. But he's the Hollywood hero. Like, I mean, this might as well be John Wayne. Like, there's not really any any major risk. He doesn't care if, you know, people lose their fingers or <laughs> whatever. Like, Well, it, uh, make, it does make sense a little bit, too, because Dick Powell directed John Wayne. We mentioned before, I mean, who didn't direct John Wayne back in the day, I guess, but Dick Powell directed, uh, you know, not John Wayne's best movie, The Conqueror, but, you know, he had some John Wayne uh, experience. And so so maybe a little direction in that way pushed the story uh, to reflect that. This is definitely a film where John Wayne would slot into this role perfectly. Like, I, I think that's why I'm a little harsh, probably on Mitchum, because this might as well be John Wayne going into Vietnam. Like, it's or it's Humphrey, uh, it's Humphrey Bogart. Too. I could I could see Humphrey Bogart stepping into the exact same role and, and making it work. On the sub, uh, you get this one moment, like 
Okay, let's introduce another sailor that we've never seen before this moment or or after, which is the German cook who's walking through and handing out soup to everyone and and making sure, uh, you know, it does not taste like tennis shoes, Herr Captain, and von Stolberg, so that we humanize von Stolberg again. Von Stolberg assures Cookie that, no, your food is fine, Cookie. The men complain when they're happy, says Cookie, and so everyone on the board is happy. Von Stolberg, to get the action moving again, orders Kunz to periscope depth. Kunz says out loud, you know, the Fuhrer would be pleased with you, Captain, to which Von Stolberg's like, yeah, I don't I don't care. Um, and apparently neither does the rest of the crew. Like Heine, you know, he gives a look at Heine and Heine's like, yeah. this guy over here, you know. Well, he puts his food down. Dude mentions the Fuhrer and then he loses his appetite. Puts it on a like precarious like shelf as things continue. I'm like, what happened to the soup? You left <laughs> boiling soup just from precariously. But, wh- but what about the soup? Soup. I don't know. They finally hear the propeller of the Hanes, right, coming at them. And so they're preparing to dive. And then there's a whole other depth charge scene. And apparently von Stolberg has gone to the future and watched every other submarine movie that would come after this and decides to order the submarine to the bottom of the ocean, subgenre fans, as we have talked before, below hull crush depth. One of my favorite submarine phrases in uh, in the submarine film subgenre. Yeah, I feel like if you have a submarine, number one, you know you're going to have depth charges and you know you're going to go below hull crush depth <laughs> no matter what. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. Even if it's like docked at, the, <laughs> at, at Norfolk or something, like, no. We're Eventually we're going below hull crush depth. Otherwise, this is not a movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they do. They go below hull crush depth. The sub groans a little bit. It springs some leaks. But because this is a movie, it holds together. And they do something that you don't necessarily see in other movies, which is that they basically park on the sea floor. Like they legit hit the sea floor and crunch, 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 and sit there for a while on the bottom. It's German engineering. Yeah, it stands up. The other thing I really liked was it wasn't just like water leaking in. They had very high contrast oil leaking out of all the innards of the ship, which felt a little bit more realistic than in other contexts where you see like all the dials and everything starts to sweat water and everything. Which miraculously, they're able to clean up all of that oil off of all of their yes. gauges by the next <laughs> they're scene. they covered with the oil later. <laughs> Maybe what? that's why they're always covered Oh my oil. God, we it's discovered always, the secret. Always leaking oil. <laughs> you just rub a little on the skin it's good for you so on the on the destroyer destroyer escort our sonar guy who can't lose anything he loses the sub they check the depth okay uh here's the depth of the ocean right now morel uh, again with the force knows that they're still around they're here somewhere and they keep traveling right so they let the destroyer go so the sub's listening they hear the haynes leave but the haynes hasn't left they've basically just shut everything down and are sitting uh silently on top of the water and so in order to be silent on a ship like this, and maybe to explain why everyone was so excited that there was a blip on the radar screen in the beginning of this film, uh, everybody's sitting around playing tic-tac-toe, which I found hysterical because I have a six-year-old and I play tic-tac-toe a lot. And as an adult, you start to realize that tic-tac-toe is really not that challenging of a game as it may have seemed a long time ago. In 1985, thermonuclear war, come on. Oh, that's right. That's right, war games. 
the comic books is interesting. I, I I appreciated the actual captain was the guy reading the comic book. The boat that stood in for the Haynes was the USS Whitehurst. Yeah. yeah. And and that was uh, Lieutenant Commander Walter Smith uh, got that role. You know, you got one guy who's reading, you know, War yeah, and Peace or something. Yeah, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Right. Yes. So all the guys are trying to be very, very silent. They're playing tic-tac-toe. They're reading novels. They're reading comic books, except up on deck. And up on deck, by the way, bunch of people trying to be quiet, everybody chilling. When all of a sudden, here comes the doctor and the poker playing guy from the beginning and just at the top of their lungs are just talking about, you know, what's going on and hey, as loud as they can up on the top. I guess when you're on the surface, you know, you can talk as loud as you want to. Sound doesn't travel through water, right? They go over to a fisherman. You mentioned there's a fisherman uh, standing there on the side of the boat. Um, He is fishing, hands over his fishing pole. We follow the line down under the water and that allows us to see, hey, look, there's the U-boat just sitting here under the hanes on the bottom. It is kind of a cool shot. I did enjoy that. It is a good transition for real. Like it, it had a very cinematic transition, you know, the scale sort of pitches, but in the top down on that miniature of it sitting on the bottom of the sea is real nice. So up on the destroyer, they're reading the, the decline of the Roman civilization and they're reading Little Orphan Annie. Down in the U-boat, Kunz is reading Mein Kampf. And this is to the displeasure, not just of von Stolberg, but pretty much everybody who's around him who's like, who's this dickhead over here? You know, we're, we're on a submarine. And I guess, you know, from what I have read, sailors in the German Navy, maybe in particular submariners, were not necessarily like hardcore Nazis all the time. Like they were Germans, but yeah. not necessarily Nazis. We've hit this note before, so I don't know. We just keep repeating it like. And I don't know, like by making both sides or making them a little bit more human, it sort of still paints the American crew badly to me as we get ready for where this is going. It's like, (laughs) I do care kind of a little bit about these dudes. They're like just trying to do their jobs. (laughs) Yeah. And Doc is wondering to Morel, you know, how do the Germans get these guys to go into what he calls underwater coffins? And Morel says, you know, if you think about it, they're in a better position than we are. They can see us coming. We can't necessarily see them coming. And Doc says, well, I wonder how that captain down there that's leading these guys thinks. And Morel dismisses it and says, look, I don't want to know about the man I'm trying to destroy. It's a John Wayne. It is. Yeah. So thinking that this destroyer is finally gone, that they have rid themselves of this terror, the U-boat rises to the surface, or, or at least comes up a little closer. Haynes Sonar picks him up, and they start to trail them again, which, of course, von Stolberg and his sonar operator on the U-boat pick up immediately and realize that this boat is not gone. They haven't lost them by sitting on the bottom of the sea. They are still there, and von Stolberg calls Morella devil. He says, I must lose him or I must kill him. It's a good setup for later. Looks yeah. like, yeah. Morell, uh, at that point, calls all of his chiefs to the wardroom and kind of gives this speech where he tells them, look, here's the situation. We have used up a lot of our depth charges to this point. We still got some. We don't have a lot. The sub can stay underwater longer than we can kind of chill out here and be safe. And so we are nearing the point of disadvantage. So me, Captain, who knows everything, I believe that from this point forward, we are going to fight a delaying action, right? We're going to rush them, and then we're going to retreat, and we're going to rush them, and then we're going to retreat. And we're going to try to do that in such a way to extend the amount of time that we can be a menace to them and give some time for these backup destroyers to arrive. 
And then we hit Montage Town and just start blowing the hell out the sub. It is an extended sequence of just explosions and bombardments. To me, like this is where you really kind of get into the psychological situation where we do get there, but I feel like the montage, like it's just so shot. Let's get through it. Let's is perfunctory. Like we just got to use up all this ammunition and we're not really punching in on like tight shots and seeing like these people, like the sweat coming up. I mean, you kind of get the German point of view for that, but it's, it's no sweat for the Americans. They're just the ones dropping the depth charges. Like they're in that superior position. And then we move into breaking the subs clock. Yeah, and- that's how you know it's gone on for a very long time is, you know, eventually the glass breaks on the submarine's clock and the explosions are starting to drive the crew crazy, which I think Doc or Morell or somebody up on the ship has hinted at earlier that this is eventually going to happen. And in that moment, you have the sort of lose your marbles moment when uh, one of the German sailors just can't deal with it anymore, grabs this giant lug wrench for protection and tries to climb the ladder and open the hatch, which, you know, would kill everybody on board the sub. All the guys are trying to, you know, grab him and take him down and, and take the wrench away. And in that moment, it's von Stolberg who kind of stops the madness. Does he stop it really though, like one dude sort of loses it. Everybody else is, is shiny. They're glistening. They're, glistening. they're not like sweating. It's not like sweating blood because I'm like terrified I'm about to die. No, they're Crisco. Uh, yeah, they, yeah, that's that's accurate. Um, and then the one non-blonde crew member of the ship sort of loses it a little bit. And there's like, all right, no, no. The captain comes and talks him down. And tells him, we're not going to die. Like, chill out. Where It's fine. I'm the captain. This is a movie. We're not going to die. Not to say that everybody is fine on board because Kunz, our Fuhrer-loving, uh, Mein Kampf reading, the Fuhrer would be proud guy, he wants to surrender. He's like, I've had enough of this. You know, let, let's surrender to the Americans and, and save our necks. Um, but the rest of the crew are like, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to stay with the captain. We trust in him. It's going to be fine. Um, <laughs> and so von Stolberg, is it an act of hubris? Is it an act of madness? Is it an act just of captainly inspiration or all of the above? Whatever it is, uh, he decides that the best course of action, really just to stick a middle finger up, I think is maybe what it is. He goes and finds a record which I love that they had records on submarines. I love this. So he goes and finds a record, takes it to the loudspeaker, puts it on the turntable and asks them to turn it up to 11. They're, they're sort of like cruising the avenue and bumping their music so that everybody can hear it, except this time the audience that they want to hear it is Morel up on the boat. It feels like something that is probably based off of like actual events. Like at some point in time, because this is based off of an actual story of a British submarine, but I feel like this music thing comes up in sub movies a lot. Yeah. Like, I don't know if any of the other films have really tracked with that, but like... Hunt for Red October. They, yeah. they, sing, they sing the national anthem as loud as possible. Basically, again, as a middle finger to the Americans. There's not a sane, reassuring vibe to this, like everybody singing, but the dudes all jump in and then they're like punching their other dudes. They're like, hey, you're not singing. Come on, sing, sing. Like, this is going to be the thing that saves us. Or it's just that defiant, like, we're going to die now. So let's see. Let's sing. I don't know. It's kind of like a suicidal musical. It's a... (laughs) 
It's if we sing really loud, we'll be inspired as Germans. But if we sing really loud, the Americans who are trying to kill us can kill us better. It doesn't change the circumstances that they're in at all. I, I think it's just like they're resigning to their fate. That's the vibe it is. So here's the tune. Coming up on the top of the hour, it's time to die now. Here is Germans in a whatever. Sub. Yeah, whatever. German, yeah, yeah. I, I was singing it in English. It was right. like the one thing that you could have done in German was like the actual German song. It would have been totally fine. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that a majority of the people in that crew uh, that were actors in that film were not German, playing Germans. That would be my first guess. Probably. Probably. Right. Yeah. So we have we have a movie musical for a moment. Everybody sings. The sonar, of course, on the big boat hears what's going on. Uh, it is fuzzy and muffled, but they get it. It's music. Morell knows that they're singing to tell him to go F himself or whatever. And Von Stolberg knows that he knows that. Let's take a minute and do a deep dive. So as a little step away from talking about the movie for a moment, let's talk about American and British war films of this era. There's a lot of them and they have a lot of things in common, but there's a lot different between American and British war films. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that most war films, specifically the ones that are coming out in the 40s and the 50s, it's fair to say that they're propaganda, but specifically in the 40s in America, the government agencies were created to like supervise the Hollywood film industry. You yeah. had like the Office of War Information and the Bureau of Motion Pictures. So that's how these collaborations where they actually had warships and they had, you know, the cooperation of all these resources to make these films because the governments really wanted to kind of convey what the allies were fighting for and they would exaggerated stuff like the Nazis and the Japanese espionage. And to me, it's not a very realistic picture. Um, I mean, I guess Hollywood films in general, is it how realistic is Hollywood films? You also kind of just like don't get a good picture of what it's like to serve. I think there's kind of a recruitment drive that's happening. Um, you don't see soldiers with PTSD or like being maimed from warfare. And, you know, as we get later into Hollywood history and we start dealing with other stuff like the Vietnam War and everything, obviously that narrative sort of shifts. But there's a lot more nuance in the British films, I think, because the British public had a more realistic picture of what was happening in the war. They were kind of facing bombs. They had all these passenger ships that were being sunk. And, you know, they were really it was real tangible to those audiences, like what was happening in Britain. And they were kind of living with it. So when Hollywood was making stuff, it had this more propaganda vibe to it. In the British films, stuff like The Cruel Sea, which was 1953 film, it was another book adaptation, or The Dam Busters, which was uh, is a prolific 1955 British film about the British Air Force mm -hmm. uh, kind of using these things. You have more moments of like the real toll of fighting a war and you know everything that's happening around even the stuff like the bridge over the river Kwai, which is 57 the same year as this it doesn't it doesn't play you have you know alistair alec guinness doing the stiff upper lip and all these characters in there but like when you get to the end of that movie it's not a triumphant feeling it's, right it's it's a very different i mean america we got there eventually later the films the great escape and eventually like the 70s sam fuller the big Red one, one of my favorite. Oh films my gosh, ever. how good is that film? If you just do a season on Lee Marvin, also invite uh -huh. me back for all of the episodes. Uh, <laughs> but 
but uh, we get there eventually. But I think there's so much interest psychologically about how America was so distant from the war and the films and the way the culture Hollywood kind of collaborated with the government to sort of present this as this is a righteous thing that we're doing um, and the service is great and really downplaying any of the negative effects. You would have never at no film of the era ever mentioned like the internment camps or anything like that. And, you know, the British films were making more uh, like The Great Escape and stuff like that. It was a more nuanced, even though The Great Escape, the Steve uh, they sort of Americanized yeah. that film. Yeah, Steve McQueen, they Americanized that film because it's also based off of actual events, but it was the British that did it. You know, I, I'm so conflicted when I watch the American films because I'm like, all right, well, this is the very, very, very sanitized view of what happened in World War II. But if you look at some of the David Lean, uh, some of those filmmakers, the British filmmakers, even Hitchcock, you get a little bit more of a nuanced view of like what was actually happening. I mean, yes, absolutely. I 100% agree agree with you and is part of the difference of American war films kind of the difference of American films which is to some degree the venue in which people are watching these things like if you know drive-ins are big at the time and it is a younger culture in America going to see films and so do I do I show my younger culture drive-in you know sort of people the hardships of war to get them to go buy popcorn or do I show them the hoorah uh, movies like The Enemy Below? Yeah I mean you're right it's very different audience and obviously Hollywood was such a bigger mechanism than what British films were putting out you know and and that level of entertainment it it was a lot more ubiquitous in america i just feel like in retrospect i wish there was a little bit more honesty in some of the films they were producing different directors billy wilder stalag 17 came out in 53 and and that one is not necessarily you know it's it's a prisoner war movie so it doesn't vibe like some of the john wayne type of film uh but it turns into hogan's heroes right it it? does you are right we sort of sanitize it down and then make it a nice fun bite-sized uh weekly television show and then i could go on forever about american war films and british war films and maybe we should at a later time i want to have you back and keep going for this but uh for the moment should we call it there yeah let's take a break What if, and follow me here, what if the Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum in Paris is a fake? Or what if artist Vincent Van Gogh, you know, the sunflowers and starry night guy, he didn't kill himself, but instead was actually murdered. You'll hear these incredible stories and a lot more when you subscribe to the Art Curious podcast. How did a cutthroat rivalry between two Renaissance masters culminate in one of the greatest artworks of all time? And was a British painter actually the real Jack the Ripper? On Art Curious, host and, truth be told, my lovely voiced wife Jennifer Dassel explores the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. And do you need to love art or even know anything about it to love this show? Are you kidding me? Before listening to Art Curious, I knew exactly nothing about fine art or the weird and amazing stories that seem to follow around some of its most iconic works and artists. Like, how did Leonardo's Salvador Mundi become the most expensive artwork ever sold at auction? And where has it disappeared to ever since? A best of recommendation by reviewers at Oh The Oprah Magazine, PC Magazine, Salon, Uproxx, it goes on and on. Art Curious is podcast storytelling for the art lover and the art novice, like me, and maybe you. 
It's the juiciest, the most shocking, and the most fascinating tales from the world of paintbrushes, printmakers, and patrons. Season 9 is out now, so subscribe today to the Art Curious Podcast with Jennifer Dassel and find out more about the show at artcuriouspodcast.com or by searching for Art Curious, that's one word, in your favorite podcast app. The Art Curious Podcast. That's A-R-T-C-U-R-I-O-U-S. The Art Curious Podcast. Subscribe for Season 9 now. This is Subgenre. I'm Josh Dassel. I am here talking with N.C. Jones about the film The Enemy Below. Uh, let's get back to talking. Let's finish up this plot. This has been a really interesting story. Should we, should we call it interesting? It's been an interesting story to this point, so maybe it'll have an interesting ending. We are on this submarine that has been sitting underneath... Uh, I say submarine, I should say U-boat. We are on an untersea boat uh, that has been under the water for a very long time, sitting below the Hanes, which is floating on the surface, pretending not to be there, but actually is. They've been down there so long that the oil lines are beginning to burst. So they end up venting all of this oil into the ocean, which creates this giant slick on the surface of the ocean, which of course the Hanes sees and says, oh yeah, they're, yeah. remember when the captain said there was a U-boat sitting underneath us? There's the proof, they're underneath us, which could be bad for the U-boat. Except von Stolberg has noticed a pattern. And uh, this is the pattern of every time that the destroyer, destroy, what did I call it? A destroyer? Uh, escort. Escort. Every time the escort has come toward them to drop the depth charges, it has to turn when it's done with that. And sometimes it turns left and sometimes it turns right. And most often it's turned, I can't remember if it was port or starboard, but most often it's turned one way. But if it turns the other way, that kind of puts them at a disadvantage for a moment that they uh, the U-boat could take advantage of. And so they're going to wait for that and see if it happens again. Yeah, I can't tell the difference between port and stern. I think I've tried to teach myself a hundred. Stern it, is port, not the other side. Stern, stern is, is the back. The front of the boat. Yeah, okay. I'm going to help you out. The left and the right. Here's how I always remember it. Port has four letters in it. Left has four letters in it. Okay. Port is left, I think. And right okay. is starboard because apparently stars are only on the right-hand side. Okay. You know what makes it more confusing is they don't consistently use that terminology in this film. They do talk about turning left and right Turn on left occasion. And, right. and I'm like, wait a minute, this is confusing. They also do the thing, can't remember, it was probably way earlier in the film. This is in a ship, it's a boat or, or vice right. versa, uh, which also feels like one of those, it always happens in submarine movies or something. Uh, a submarine, what's the difference between a boat and a ship? A submarine is always a boat. Always. Always a boat. It's okay. always a boat. Anything else is a ship. A submarine is a boat. Okay. Maybe I'm just remembering Crimson Tide because I watched that again. <laughs> <laughs> So this boat or this ship or whatever the hell it is, uh, is above on the surface, is turning left and it's turning right. And the U-boat below is waiting for them to make a mistake. And of course they make the mistake, right? Of course that, that happens. And in that moment where the destroyer is vulnerable, Von Stolberg says, torpedoes loose. And they let the torpedoes go. The torpedoes head towards the destroyer. Morell and his crew see them coming. There's nothing they can do about it. They're just chilling, waiting for the torpedoes to hit. And boom. They broadside the destroyer. Yeah, but it's not too bad. <laughs> They're all right. <laughs> it's fine. A couple they, of torpedoes. It's a couple of torpedoes. What are they going to do? So they 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 hit the ship. The ship is not in good shape, right? You get hit by a couple of torpedoes. You're certainly not in good shape. They're taking on water. The boat's going to sink. Morell knows that. And so says, you know what we're going to do? 
we're going to pretend to be hurt worse than we really are. So everybody, go grab your mattress, bring it up to the deck of this ship and set it on fire. And that's going to look like this boat is just ablaze and we're, we're a lot worse off than we are. But, but what we're going to do is we're going to keep a few core people on this boat, the engine room among them, and the dudes at one of the gun towers. Everybody else is going to get in the, uh, the escape boats. Everybody's going to get out of here. Um, but we're going to wait and see if these guys come up to see how hurt we are. I feel very vindicated when they finally do get hit by torpedoes because I felt bad for the Germans the whole time. And then it's just the hubris, the hubris of <laughs> Robert Mitchum needs to be needs to be smacked down. But again, he's got the force and he knows how to trick everybody because he's the smartest Marty out here. Apparently, apparently, because his whole like, let's burn the mattresses up thing works because von Stolberg brings the ship up to periscope depth. They have a little look. Oh, look, the destroyer escort. It's on fire. Looks like it's going to go down. He's conned. They take the boat, the the U-boat all the way to the. That's how you know, by the way. It's not U-ship, it's U-boat. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So they take the U-boat all the way to the surface and they do what I thought was a pretty gentlemanly thing, which is, yeah, yeah which is they, they get out the signal light. They're, and yeah, they're just like, hey dudes. Yeah, click, click, click. We are here, <laughs> click, click, click. We're going to blow your boat up in a minute, but click, click, click. Get your dudes, we're going to give you some time to get your people off the ship. We only want to sink the boat not your people. Right. And of course, Murel is just like, yeah, cool. Thanks, bro. And then she's going to run his ship in. <laughs> yeah, so, so dumb. It He's is. evil. <laughs> he is evil. Robert Mitchum is evil. Can he ever not be evil? He's just evil. No. Like, even when he's a good guy, he's evil. <laughs> We've got uh, Morel running around the boat, lighting stuff on fire, and he's been given the signal, hey, the boat's going to be sunk. You need to get your people off. And so he does. But really what he's done is he's reserved the engine room and the gunners. And so he yells down to the engine room, okay, they bought it. You know, give it full power and turn right towards them and then get off the boat. And so uh, the engine room does exactly that. They put the engines to flank and they flee the boat. And the destroyer is heading, you know, just dead on to the sub. The uh, The gunners are firing on the sub. The sub's returning fire. And it's like this slow motion car crash with von Stolberg knowing that they're going to get rammed. Like there's no way this destroyer escort is not going to ram their sub. And so he tells everybody, go down and set the automatic detonator. It does, they don't have that much time, but he tells yeah. them, go down, set the automatic detonators. They go down underneath in the boat and set like these wily coyote-sized like giant bombs to blow the sub up. And sure enough, if boom, the haze doesn't ram their sub. Yeah, it just is such a dick move. Like the whole time he's predicting his enemy's thing i guess he just still doesn't see them as human and he's just gonna kill them even though they just were like hey we'll let you get off your boat we're not gonna kill you it's not about you know killing people von stolberg gets he says everybody off the boat everybody abandons the boat but he noticed he notices at the last second that his buddy heine isn't among everybody who has gotten off the boat and so von stolberg being apparently the one character in this entire movie who has any sort of conscience or feeling climbs down back into the u-boat and finds of course heine who is down in the bridge of the sub which is quickly filling with water. Heine is hurt. Heine is dying, but he manages to hoist his friend 
up the ladder and out onto the conning tower of the sub. At that point, he he looks like he's totally prepared to go down with the ship. I mean, which has been his arc the whole film. He's not got anything to go back to Germany for, and uh, but his bro Heine is in, in trouble, and he goes and saves him. And then he comes back up, and Mural is like, I guess I don't have to just let everybody indiscriminately die. Like, maybe I'll help him now. Like, <laughs> maybe I I'll help him. I'll see this dude helping his friends. There's not enough time to have a little dialogue or a little insight into what the character is thinking at this point in time because both the ships are sinking. There's a lot of fire. There's like bombs going off. Yeah, there's Everybody a ticking. Like, there is a literal ticking clock with the yeah. with the bombs. Yeah, but it's just such an unearned transition to me. Now he's all right. Like you were five minutes ago, you were ramming your ship down the <laughs> submarine. What exactly? Now you see there's humans on board. Maybe he was like, Heine is hot and I have to save Heine. <laughs> look, at, and... look at these oil dudes on this boat. I got to get them on my boat. Was was Von Stolberg's shirt open at that point? Uh, when it was it not? Was. Yeah, when exactly. was it not? Yeah, in the little sailor hat. Morell happens to have a rope. You know, he has a rope. He tosses it to Von Stolberg. Von Stolberg does his Boy Scout thing and ties Heine to the, the rope. And they manage to hoist Heine back up and get him off the U-boat and onto the destroyer escort. And then Von Stolberg pulls, you know, like a Jason Bourne and climbs himself from one boat to another and makes it up there. And Morell's ready to jet. He's like, you know, peace and ready to run. And Von Stolberg's like, no, this is my my buddy here, Heine. Well, he's dying. Yeah, but he's my buddy. Let's get him. So they, they take Heine out together. Right at that moment, Lieutenant Ware and everybody else who's been on the escape boat look back, notice what's going on. Oh, look, there's the captain. Oh, look. And they, by the way, they've taken all the Germans who dived into the water onto this escape boat. So you've got a boat full of everybody. Uh, there's both of our captains. They are trying to get off the boat. We need to go help them. I think if you took the mile high, super generous view, it would be Murrell looking at Stolzberg or Van Stolberg and Heine in that moment. And yeah. you would have the flashback to his fiance or his wife, excuse me. They his were British wife, his new British wife. Right. And he would have that moment of, oh, he's saving somebody when I chickened out and I didn't save my wife. Then it's that. Then it clicks. And he he's like, OK, I will help you now. But we don't get any of that. We no. don't. None of that is unpacked. Maybe in 1957, like that was given like, oh, of course, that's what it was. But, you know, a shot, some sort of close up some sort of wheels turning would have really helped here and then all of a sudden it's just so frantic when the, the other soldiers are going on the boat i mean it's very tense because there's a ticking clock obviously so yep. the story's working at that point like they're about to blow up if they don't get off the ship everything is on fire around them there's punchy fun little dialogue about i'm double parked down <laughs> Downstairs, right. Let's park. go. Like so, that all works. But it would have just everything would have fallen into place if they just given that moment to Mitchum to like have some humanity. He's just a sociopath, man. He just <laughs> is. The enemy below was inside of us the whole time. <laughs> it was. <laughs> what I take from this part of the conversation <laughs> is that Robert Mitchum is evil. <laughs> evil i mean i guess he helps them at the end he puts them on the boat and just he doesn't just shoot them in the head like see well wait wait we're back full circle 
Robert Mitchum is Kaiser Sose. We did. We got hints of him in the beginning and only heard his voice, and we didn't quite know who he was. And at the end, we figure out he's just as evil as hell. That's who our guy is. His story is that his other boat got sank by a submarine, but do we have like facts? Can you Uh, prove that? Maybe he sank his own boat. Is he Hungarian? I don't know. Um, so we're trying to get we're the German sailors and the U.S. sailors and everybody's climbing up and they're bringing their respective captains down and putting them into the escape boat. Of course, we get into the boat just in time and we gun the engine and get away right as the submarine detonates in this, you know, miniature explosion, I guess. It's fireworks um, and, and destroys both ships. So both of the ships go down. Everybody escapes and we get to the tag on this movie, which is, you know, a few days later uh, on board an American destroyer. One of those ones that it's coming uh, finally shows up. We're on board that and we are the Americans, I guess, are watching a sea funeral being held for Heine where we salute and say goodbye and then tilt the cot up and let the body fall into the ocean and sink to the briny depths. And now you actually get German. Like, it's so weird that this was like the song I felt like was more German, but the whole speech, I guess maybe it's because Kurt Jurgens, Jurgens, Jurgens. <laughs> Don't forget the umlauts. He is actually German or Austrian. And so he does that whole speech in German and they don't sub it at all. And it is interesting to let him do that whole soliloquy there on Heine. He has some nice things to say, we think, about Heine before they commit his body to the deep. And we finish the movie on the, I'm going to use the word again. I don't know if I'm using it right. We finish it on the fantail uh, of the destroyer where Morell and the doctor have this last talk about this new possibility of hope. And, you know, maybe, maybe Morell's view of the world as whatever it was he thinks it is. You know, there is this hope that the doctor was talking about before. Um, Von Stolberg is standing on the back of the ship. He, he's looking out at the water forlornly. Uh, Morell comes up to him, offers him a smoke, as you do. In the in the forties, yeah. have a cigarette, and von Stolberg tells him, "I should have died many times, and the fact that I didn't die this time is your fault." And gives Morell a wonderful chance to say, oh, "I didn't know that. Next time, I won't throw you the rope." Yeah. yeah. And von Stolberg finishing the film with the big line, ah, "I think you will," yeah. telling us as an audience that Morell is a man with a good heart, even though he pretends he maybe isn't. Perhaps, yes. I or guess he's evil. The Hollywood ending there. And uh, yeah, it's nice when you always tell a character that he is a good character rather than just show him. I guess he showed him. He threw him the rope. It's all right. Whatever. <laughs> I'm going to get over my graduate remission <laughs> eventually, probably. You are a very smart person with smart thoughts about a lot of stuff. And I appreciate that. And that's why I love having you on this show. But let's see how smart you are in You Can't Handle the Truth. In You Can't Handle the Truth, I am going to ask you three questions, multiple choice questions. I'll give you a chance at it. Uh, If you need a hint, let me know. But uh, today in You Can't Handle the Truth, you are going to be playing for a pair of authentic German Submariner short shorts, complete with a matching tank top and body oil. Are you ready, NC Jones? Yes, so ready, so ready. All right, here we go. Question one. Though he's played criminals, Robert Mitchum's roles sometimes found him playing more straight-laced characters like Captain Morell and the Enemy Below. But in which of these real-life instances did Mitchum actually tangle with the law? Was it A, in 1948, he was arrested for marijuana possession? Is it B, in 1952, he was caught selling counterfeit prints of his own films? 
Or C, in 1956, he accidentally punched a cop, mistaking him for actor Ronald Reagan. I believe he was arrested in 1948 for marijuana possession. That is correct. He was. He was actually at a party uh, in Laurel Canyon. The cops kicked down the door. Here's our man with doobie in hand. Uh, he is arrested and spent, I think, two months in jail for the offense. So very good. And see, you got the first one. All right, let's move to uh, question number two. German-turned-Austrian actor Kurt Jurgens is no stranger to playing German military officers. The gigs, though, were so consistent that what became the norm? Was it A, he took to handing out a small card explaining that he was not, in fact, a real-life Nazi? B, his tailor kept a full complement of German military uniforms ready to go at all times? Or C, he had his name legally changed to Lieutenant Commander Kurt Jurgens? I'm going to guess. I don't have a good idea here. Do you want a hint? Sure, yeah. It got progressively harder to pay a dry cleaning bill in Deutschmarks. Okay, I guess I'll go with the tailor. Uh, B, his tailor kept a full complement of German military uniforms ready to go at a moment's notice. That is correct. Him playing a German officer happens so often that you just got to have the right fitting, right outfit ready to go. And uh, and he did. That's two in a row. We're trying for three in a row here. Here we go. Number three. The U.S. Navy fashion kit, as far back as the early 1800s, has included some form of the bell-bottom trouser for sailors. Besides being easy to roll up whenever you swab the deck, what other function do they serve? Is it A, they shade a sailor's shoes, which can become red hot when standing on a deck? Is it B, they can be knotted and filled with air to create a life preserver? Or C, they're perfect for fitting in with the hippies? Can I get a hint for this one? Of course you can. The hint for this one is you can also tie a clove hitch in the underwear to make a tie for when you're rescued. Okay, we'll go with B. B, they can be knotted and filled with air to create a life preserver. Absolutely correct. That is true. This is why sailors in the U.S. Navy wear bell bottoms. Just in case you're thrown into the ocean, tie them up, throw them around your neck, fill them with air. Instant life preserver. Wow, that did not know that. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic to you. You get... You get some applause for that. That is a perfect three out of three. Good job, NC. Thank you. So now uh, I think you have a question for me. Yes, I have a question. So of our many lovely American sailors on the ship here, following Captain Mural, one of our actors, this was his first appearance in any sort of feature film. Is it Ralph Manza, also known as the chauffeur from Banachek? Was it Frank Albertson, who was in some of the mini westerns, or was it David Hedison, our uh, Lieutenant Ware? Okay. Hit me with the names one more time. Ralph Manza. Ralph Manza played Lieutenant Benelli. Okay. Frank Albertson. Frank Albertson, uh, who right. Was Crane, Lieutenant Crane. Okay, got it. Or David Hedison, who was Lieutenant Ware. Huh. So if this was their first time on film? Yes. Wow. Well, I'm, let's go by process of elimination. I think Lieutenant Ware or David Hedison, if it's your first time on film, that's a pretty big role for your first time on film. Frank Albertson was Lieutenant Crane. Crane had a role, but it wasn't as big as Ware's. And the last one was... Ralph Manza. Ralph Manza, uh, right. Just because is my reason I'm going for this. I'm going with C, Ralph Manza. Uh, it was not Ralph Manza. Oh, no. It, it was David Hedison, who was also in James Bond as 
Felix later for a couple of the bonds. Really? Yeah. I, I should have offered you the hint. I was going to say something. Tell me the hint. That. I want to know what the hint was. <laughs> I was just going to say he's a sometimes friend to Sean Connery. Uh, I don't know if that would have helped. Sean Connery had a lot of friends. I'm not sure. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure if that one would have helped me. I think I would have gotten it wrong no matter what. That's not important. What is important is that UNC got uh, all three of those correct. Congratulations to you. And again, a round of applause. <laughs> I guess that means it's time for Rave Rental or Refund. In Rave Rental or Refund, we give our final word on this film. Is it a rave? Best thing we've ever seen. Best thing since sliced bread. Definitely would go see it in a theater. Is it a rental? Give me the red box. Find the Hulu. Or is it a refund? I want my freaking money back. It's the enemy below. NC, what do you say? This one's definitely a rental for me. There are better war films to go out of your way to see. There are definitely better submarine films to go catch. It, it takes a lot for me to say refund me at this movie, but this is not one of those. This is definitely, it's watchable. <laughs> <laughs> That's It's the glowing review from NC Jones, everybody. It's watchable. It's, it's watchable. <laughs> I'm with you on refund is hard for me. Like there's very few movies that I will say is a refund or even that I've ever walked out on in my life. So it's definitely not a refund. It's not a rave. It's not a rave. It's a yeah. it's a fine movie. It's an okay movie. I will watch it. I guess that means the only thing left for me is that it is a rental. So uh, we are in agreement. The enemy below is a rental. I, I can live with that. Yeah. 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 Well, NC Jones, thank you so much for being on Subgenre. Thank you for coming and talking with me about all of this fantastic deep, weird, interesting stuff. Thank you for making sure that we all understand that Robert Mitchum is the devil <laughs> and that Thomas Edison <laughs> electrocuted an elephant. I don't know if that's going to make it into, if that reference means anything, if it's going to make it into the show, but listen to the extras that'll come out. You'll definitely hear that. Yeah. Tell the people where they can find you, plug whatever you want to. Now's your time. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. I had a lot of fun. Hey, uh, if you want to find me online, I'm on Twitter as Nickel Jones. I have a short film that came out uh, last year is meritbadgesfilm.com you can catch it it's on YouTube as well and working on a couple more short films hopefully pretty soon as we get out of the COVID crisis but uh, thanks yeah this has been fantastic any excuse to watch movies I really do need more excuses to watch movies and when I do a Lee Marvin season you're my first guest oh my god yes I should be NC Jones thank you so much thanks man <laughs> This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, N.C. Jones. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. If you love the show and need some more, subscribe and leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. Believe me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. You can also support us with a donation and visit our website at subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at subgenrepod. We'll welcome you back soon for our next episode. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Thank you.
Kabunki.